Let me encourage you to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 7 this morning as we return to our study of Romans 7. And as you're turning there, let me sort of get us there by way of introduction. Our world, as we know it, is filled with blame shifting. We see it in politics, we see it in marriage, we see it in counseling. This issue of blame shifting is nothing new either. It's age old. The first woman essentially said, the devil made me do it. Only to be outdone by her man Adam who blamed her. And just when you think it couldn't get more bizarre, Adam blames God himself. Which is where it always seems to go and where it always seems to end. Well, as we return to Romans 7, you might say the hits just keep on rolling. If you look at Romans 7, 7, you'll see what I mean. In verse 7, it says, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? In other words, is the real problem this problem of sin, ultimately the law's fault? Which is to say, is it ultimately, actually, God's fault? It's a pretty big question. It's a blame-shifting kind of question. And the Apostle Paul apparently either had been asked that question after explaining the Gospel, or he's anticipating that that question will be asked. Now, why would that question come about? It would come about if, well, since he's made it clear that that the law in no way, shape, or form can bring about salvation. Not only can it not bring about salvation, the law in no way, shape, or form can bring about sanctification or spiritual growth. So he's made it clear what the law cannot do, this prized law of God. But he hasn't only made it clear what the law cannot do, He said some things about what the law does that aren't altogether positive. If you turn back to Romans 5.20, just briefly, you'll see, and these are just a a couple of the negative statements he's made about the the law of God. In Romans 5.20, it says, The law came in so that the transgression or the violation against God's law would increase. That's a negative thing to be saying about the law. And then if you go back to Romans 7, just as a sampling, in Romans 7.5, he says, Sinful passions which were aroused by the law. Here's what the law can't do. It can't save. It can't sanctify. And not only that, the law actually can bring out the worst in people. So the question is, is the law the problem? Is the law of God the the real culprit? But again, if you, if you peel back the, the layers, just a couple layers, or maybe just one layer, you, you have to then be saying, is God the problem? Because it's His law. Is it God's fault? Is the law sin in verse 7? And he answers it in verse 7 with a firm blast of the trumpet by saying, may it never be. May it never be. Not in your wildest dreams could it be that. No, no, 
No! And as we've seen in the past, when he uses this phrase in the Greek New Testament, when he says, may it never be, as it's translated in English, almost without question, it's in relationship to some outrageous, blasphemous thought about God. And this is no exception. And he can't object more strongly, no, don't go there. Surely don't go there. Your sin that causes you to need the gospel as your one and only solution, which is what Romans is all about, is not the fault of the law of God. It's not God's fault. Well, after objecting so strongly, he gives a defense why he would, for why he would object so strongly. So, is it, is it the law's fault? No! And then the rest of the passage in verses 7 continuing in 7 down to verse 12, is a defense, is where we find a defense for such an objection. I'm going to call it three lines of defense. Verses 7 to 12, Romans 7, three lines of defense demonstrating that the law of God is not the problem. He gives three lines of defense proving, if you will, demonstrating that the law of God is not the problem. In other words, we could say, Three lines of defense proving, demonstrating that God is not the problem, which is where this would ultimately go. Let me preview those three lines of defense now. I'll keep them as simple as I can. In verse 7, the first line of defense, the law exposes sin. The law exposes sin. Second line of defense in verses 8 to 11, our sin is the problem. Our sin is the problem. As in, God's not the problem. Our sin is the problem. Third line of defense in verse 12, the law is holy, righteous, and good. So the law exposes sin, verse 7. Our sin is the problem, verses 8 to 11. The law is holy and righteous and good, number 3 in verse 12. And what this is going to do is using a good logical argument, it's going to silence those who try to fault God for the sin problem. It's also going to silence those who perhaps were trying to say and trying to prove that Paul, by preaching the gospel, which says the law can't save you, it's silencing those who would want to say Paul was actually anti-law. He's against the Old Testament. He's against the Old Testament law. And if you believe the gospel, somehow you're against the Old Testament and against the Old Testament law. And it silences those folks as well. It's really a masterful argument. It's rather simple, but it is rather masterful. There's just no place whatsoever for doing what we do as fallen people. Blame shift. And ultimately, it seems like all blame shifting ends up blaming God. There's just no place for it whatsoever because at the end of the day, You need to not point your finger at the holy, good, righteous law of God as the culprit. You need to turn the bathroom lights on and look in the mirror and say, that's what the problem is. That's what the issue is. This isn't about God. This is about me. I need the gospel not because God has done something wrong. It's because I've done something wrong. And that's what we'll see in our passage. Number one, the first line of defense demonstrating the law of God is not the problem. The law exposes sin. We see it in verse 7 where he continues on. He says, on the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. 
Maybe read that again to have it locked in your mind before we start commenting on it. The most important thing is the text. On the contrary, no, 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 may it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. It's pretty straightforward. The law is not the problem. As a matter of fact, Paul is saying, I would not have known about my problem, my sin problem, if it weren't for the law. In that sense, it's very helpful. It's essential. We need an external, objective measurement. We need an external, objective standard by which we can measure ourselves to see whether or not we have a problem. And he's saying, it showed me that I had a problem. It showed me my sin. It doesn't make any sense whatsoever to be against the external standard of righteousness. Just because it shows you your fault doesn't mean it's bad. Actually, it's good. It's the external ultimate good and it shows you your sin. The law is good. It's a truth teller. Romans 3.20 said, Through the law comes the knowledge of sin. It's essentially saying the same thing. The external standard isn't the problem. It's true and right and good, but it does show us that we have a problem. Now, for clarity's sake, when you look at verse 7 where he says, I would not have come to know sin except through the law, there's an interpretive issue to pay attention to when it comes to that verse. Because surely Paul isn't saying, apart from God's Old Testament law, there's no knowledge whatsoever of sin. He's surely not saying that because in Romans chapter 2, what verse was it? Verse 15, he says the law is written on people's hearts. And so there's something in everyone because the law is written on people's hearts that knows something about good and bad. So when we read this statement here, when he says, I would not have come to know sin except through the law, through the Old Testament law, through the Mosaic law, we, we, we could take that as meaning, I would not have really known. I would not have, have felt it for, for all of its force. I wouldn't have known uh, the, the depth of, of sin if it weren't for the external Old Testament law of God. In fact, if you keep reading in verse 7, you'll see he's talking about this very matter of really knowing it. It says in verse 7, For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, You shall not covet, as it does in Exodus twenty, seventeen. It's one thing to know that an action is wrong. But when you, when you pull out that commandment, the tenth of the Ten Commandments, Thou shalt not covet. You're not just talking about the action. You're actually talking about the motive. You're talking about what's inside. Sure, I may have had an idea of what's right and wrong, because everyone does, because the law of God is written on everyone's heart. But when the law of God comes out, when the Mosaic law comes out, when the Ten Commandments come out, and you have a commandment like this one, Thou shalt not covet, we're way beyond, way deeper than external actions. 
We're talking about desire. We're talking about motive. How many times have you heard someone say, it's okay to look as long as you don't touch? Well, I've heard that a lot of times. And hear this. That's a load of beans. Okay? Thou shalt not covet all of a sudden changes everything. It's, it's not only wrong to touch, it's wrong to look with desire for something that is not yours and doesn't belong to you. And so when he says, I wouldn't have known sin, well, he would, he would have had an understanding, but he wouldn't have known it like this. He wouldn't have had that, 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 that canon that just completely explodes the wrong thinking and wrong notion of a philosophy that says, it's okay to look, just not okay. Or, it's okay to look, it's just not okay to touch. That misses it grossly. So we see the law of God is anything but the problem. It's the truth-telling expose on my rebellious heart is what it is. It's true, the law can't save anyone. The law can't sanctify anyone. That's why we need Christ. That's why we need the gospel. Absolutely, without question. He's been arguing that, but... Don't for a second think somehow, therefore, the law is a problem. The law is so helpful because it comes along and says, Pat, you've got a huge problem, bigger than you ever imagined problem. And it does the same for you and it does the same for me. It did the same for the Apostle Paul. It exposes sin for what it is. I was somewhere two weeks ago and had this point driven home in an interesting way. Two weeks ago, I was at a social event and I ran into someone I hadn't seen since the ninth grade. And after talking a little bit, this woman said to me, pointing her finger right at me, she said, you were a bad person. I loved it. You know? I mean, it's just like, here's a softball for you, Pat, you know? Oh, and by the way, what do you do for a living, you know? <laughs> you were a bad person. And I said, I'm sorry. I apologize for that. You're right. And of all the people who deserve to go to hell, I do. And I was able to talk about grace. <laughs> And talk about the gospel. Now, apart from, by the grace of God, being exposed to God's objective, external, righteous standard, God's law, if you will, I never, ever would have said that. Ever. Right? What I would have said, here I have this, this woman I haven't seen for who knows how many years, and she says, you are a bad person, and I would have to immediately start comparing myself to other people, and you know, not really, and how I was just young, or you know. Instead, only because of what God's law would tell me about myself, would I be able to have the freedom and, quite frankly, honesty to be able to say, you're right. I, I am a bad person. I'm so bad of all people, I deserve to go to hell. And see, then I see I have a need for Christ, the law keeper, who kept the law on my behalf. 
I'm so thankful for what it does. I'm not going to blame the law for telling me the truth about myself, as painful as it might be. The law exposes sin. And that hurts, but it's good because then we can just come clean and be honest before God and agree with God about ourselves. Let's move on to a second line of defense. The law is not the problem. The law exposes sin. Number two, our sin is the problem. Verses 8 to 11. And here's how the format goes in in verses 8 to 11. Verse 8 is the main point, and then he gives himself as an illustration. And so let's see. I love verse 8. Keep it in contrast with before, okay? Verse 8 then says, But sin! That's the word to be emphasized in the whole sentence. But sin! The law is not the problem, but sin taking opportunity through the commandment produced in me coveting of every kind. And if you could go back and and pay a little bit more attention to those words, taking opportunity through the commandment, it's military verbiage describing the starting point of an attack. If you're going to go for home base, wherever the, 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 the key fortress is, and you're going to invade at that level, at the very foundational level, it's using that kind of verbiage. So when he says taking opportunity through the commandment, that's what sin has done. Sin has come and invaded at the very core basic level and and it's convoluted and twisted this, this business of commandment. If it can hijack things at that level, then it can succeed in other words. And it produced in me coveting of every kind. The idea is our sinful perspective... Sin is the problem. Our sinful thinking hears or comes into contact with the holy, righteous law of God. And instead of seeing it and hearing it for what it really is, what happens as these two, as as we take in God's holy and righteous law, what happens is bam! The fire is ignited and explodes with more sin. With, with more problems. That's where, and maybe reread it in that sense, but sin, the mirror is the problem. You're the problem, I'm the problem. Taking opportunity through the commandment, if you will, hijacking the commandment, perverting the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. There's an explosion of coveting. That's what's going on here. And that doesn't show that the law of God is wrong. It shows that the sinner is wrong. Mark Twain, that great theologian, wink, wink, said that if a mule thinks he knows what you want him to do, he will do just the opposite. And then Twain admitted that he himself is like the mule. He said, often I'm mean for the sake of being mean, because I'm not supposed to be mean. But the fault lies not in the ideal, but in the man who reacts against it. And then someone else rightly observed, the fault is not in the command, it is in the mulishness of the sinner. I just wanted to say that. Mulishness. Yeah, that's us. I hear the divine standard and I say, I will do the opposite even if I don't say it that way. And even if I don't verbalize it, I hear what God says and I say, who are you to tell me what to do? 
I'm going to do what I want to do. And it's like it makes it even worse. And Paul says, yeah, coveting of every kind. He goes on to explain it a little bit in verse 8 with intriguing insight. Look there at verse 8 where it continues on by saying, For apart from the law, sin is dead. I think he's speaking relatively. Because by the way, there's sin before the law. He's clearly talking about the Mosaic law because he's quoting the Ten Commandments. But sin existed before the Ten Commandments. And so he's got to be talking relatively here. He, he's not, when he says dead, he's, he, he doesn't mean it in this context as absolutely uh, without any life whatsoever. He's not talking about non-existence. When he says, for apart from the law, sin is dead, theologians and New Testament scholars use synonyms like dormant or, or unprovoked. It's the sleeping dog is what it is. It's the formidable, powerful, potentially ferocious Rottweiler is what it is. Who's asleep. That's sin. Only to have the law of God as the stick, if you will, poke the Rottweiler and then it's on. Right? And now we have issues. (laughs) And the law of God, as someone has rightly observed, never lets sleeping dogs lie. Poke sin. And then it's on. Apart from the law, sin is dead. Well, the issue is we do have the law. We do have the law. You know, when I was a kid, I never, ever, ever wanted to or even thought about riding my motorcycle in the river. Until my dad, I don't know why, one day said, son, don't ride your motorcycle in the river. You know, it's like on a cartoon. The thought goes in your mind. Aha! Ride your motorcycle in the river. And then after that, there's no place I would rather ride my motorcycle as in the river. It's what I wanted to do. And why was it that every time I did it, it was like he happened to be watching me and I was busted? You know? Don't ride your motorcycle too fast on that gravel road. You know? No stunts, no kind of tricks. Stand up on the seat, you know, see how we can do it. I mean, it's just it's how it is. There's a law. And I'm a lawbreaker. I'm the problem. And we could all share stories and, and relate. It's not that we do it all the time, but there's something in us. Don't tell me that I can't. Then what happens is verses 9 to 11... I take as an elaboration on verse 8. He's going to give a personal illustration. He's going to use himself. Now, I I should say to you that there's some debate amongst very like-minded Bible scholars on how to take verses 9 to 11. Some see it as Paul, as I'm going to, and, and Paul is a representative of the human race in the sense that he's like us. Some take it as Israel. Some take it as Israel personified. Uh, some take that's the second, and others take this uh, idea in nine to eleven as referring to Adam. Okay, 
I'm going to take it as Paul. It's very personal. I think it's the most straightforward way to take it. He's just now illustrating verse 8. Sin is the problem. I'm the problem, not the law of God. It's not the problem. I'm the problem. He's retelling his own personal history of sin and the law. So let's go ahead and continue. Verse 9, I was once alive apart from the law. Again, relatively speaking, he's alive apart from the law because the law predates him. But probably in the sense of like Jesus and the rich young ruler, Jesus says, keep the law. And he says, I have, in essence. We know he hasn't. But external conformity from his perspective, he had. He'd never come under conviction. Or how about even Paul in Philippians chapter 3, where he talks about, as to the law, blameless. Yeah, external conformity from his perspective as an unbeliever. I think that's the idea here. I was once alive apart from the law, apart from conviction of sin under the law. Sure, I did the external kind of stuff outwardly, but, but, but I wasn't under conviction to actually sing that I'm the problem on the inside. And then verse 9 goes on to say, but when the commandment came, when the commandment came, everything changes. When the commandment came, John Calvin says, when it has begun to be truly understood is what Paul means. When it came, when it came and I saw the law for what it really is and and I saw myself for who I really am in light of the law. When it came, keep reading in verse 9, sin became alive Sin became alive and I died. Sin slayed me. Sin slew me. Which is it? Sin devastated me. Sin killed me. Sin wiped me out. My self-righteous Pharisee self was knocked down entirely when I began to see the law for what it really is. It killed any cheerful assumption of innocence. Verse 10, still telling his personal story, I think. And this commandment, which was to result in life, right? If you really are a law keeper, there's life promised. Proved to result in death for me. He's already talking about the goodness of the law. This commandment promises life. For me, proved to be death. Again, it's pointing to the fact that that's because the me there is is Paul the sinner. The good thing leads to bad, and that's because he's bad. As someone said, sin makes heaven's gifts the stepping stones to hell. Seems to fit the idea of verse 10. We keep reading in verse 11. For sin, he keeps building his argument. For sin, taking an opportunity. See, he's, he's repeating verse 8, right? For sin, taking an opportunity, hijacking, if you will, through the commandment. Sin is the problem. And then he changes what he said from verse 8 a little bit in verse 11, where he ends it by saying, deceived me. And through it, killed me. Sin misuses the law. Sin twists and perverts the law. And that seems to be what he's talking about here. It hijacks the law. Deceived him, it says, and 
through it killed me. Sin uses the law by putting a perverted twist on the law. Maybe this happens in multiple ways. Maybe since I'm a sinner, I hear the law of God and I see it as something I can keep because I overestimate myself and I underestimate God. Well, that's a perversion. Or, or I come into contact with God's law and, and I think actually it's not as intense as it, as it might otherwise seem. I forget the motive part. I forget the heart part. I only think about the external part. That's doable. A sinful perspective hears and receives the law and twists it and perverts it. And you know where that leads? It leads to death. How many people do you know How many people have you heard? How many people do you know who think that if they keep the Ten Commandments, they go to heaven? A lot of people. More people than you know. This would be an excellent case in point. Sin, perverted, twisted-minded people, receive or hear God's good and perfect law. That's not the problem. They are the problem And it's hijacked. It's twisted. It's perverted at its very core. And it leads to cataclysmic problems. It leads to death. Sin hijacks the law, deceives, and then kills. Think about how many... This might help too. Think about how many religious groups use the Bible. Affirm the Bible as all true would go to the wall for Genesis to Revelation and maybe then some to not be outdone. It's all true. It's all right. And then miss the Gospel. And miss the fact that we need Christ in His perfect righteousness and and Christ in His perfect atoning death and that it's all of grace and it's only through faith and it's based solely and entirely based upon the, the sufficient work of Christ. There are tons of religions like that. Tons of them. And we are so naive sometimes as to think as long as you say we believe the Bible is true, Genesis to Revelation, and we use Bible words that we're Christians. This is a great text in dealing with that kind of thinking. He's saying, look, the law, back to verse 11, sin, a perverted perspective, a twisted perspective, taking opportunity through the commandment. It's using the commandment. A twisted angle on the commandment deceived me and through it killed me. Paul would have gone to the wall for the truthfulness of the Bible. Sin, perverted thinking, understanding, leads to a manipulation of what this actually says, what it actually means by what it says. And people hold on to that, like Paul was, and it leads to your ship getting sunk, it leads to catastrophe makes this very relevant, very helpful, very profound. But please hear, 
please know, please note, those Ten Commandments aren't the problem. Right? The law is not the problem. Sin is the problem. And what we do with those commandments, or what we don't do with those commandments, when what we do with them, or what we don't do with them, keeps us from seeing our spiritual bankruptcy as the problem, and therefore keeps us from Christ as the answer. I know for sure, I've had conversations with people before when I, and I try to explain, and perhaps you have as well, that you know, that trying to keep the Ten Commandments will never, ever, ever get you to heaven. And that is such a violation to what people are thinking. And they think somehow I'm dissing, if you will, the Ten Commandments. And I'm just trying to say, you just have to see them for what they actually say. They give you no hope. That's why we need Christ. This is a helpful text when it comes to understanding those kinds of things. Well, let's end on this great and positive note. The third line of defense demonstrating that God is not at fault. The law of God is not at fault. The law of God is not the problem. Verse 12 is so simple, so clear. And he says in verse 12, So then, you know, in contrast to sin which is the problem, so then, the law is holy. It's set apart. It, it, it's perfect. It's not even close to sin. So then the law is holy and, and the commandment. Now he's getting to the specifics. The bigger picture, the law, uh, the specifics of the commandment, as in thou shalt not covet. And the commandment is holy, just like the law, the whole, and righteous. It's just, it's fair. Even in condemning people, it's just and fair. And then the best way, I think, just a simple way to put it, and good. Sinners, problem, law, good. It's not the problem. Neither God nor His law is the problem. But, other, uh, but like other powerful good things, it can be perverted and twisted and used for bad. I wouldn't want to live in a world without knives. Knives do great things. They prepare our food. It would be pretty tough to eat most of the food we're going to eat today, apart from knives, right? Knives cut rope and twine, and knives are used to create things. Knives are great things, and knives are sometimes taken with perverse motives and hijacked, if you will, to go back to what I've been saying about the law. And knives are used to murder people. Doesn't mean knives are bad. I wouldn't want to live in a world without fire. Cooks the food, right? We, 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 we melt things down and, and manufacture things. And, and we have warmth. Fire is a great thing. And yet fire does devastatingly horrible things in this fallen world. And the analogies could go on and on and on. 
just because something is taken and perverted and used for wrong things by sinners doesn't mean it's bad. doesn't mean it's wrong. And it's bad thinking to think so. Hey, let, let's have it all said for the record. Paul says, the law of God is holy and righteous and good. It can't save you. And, and perverted-minded people take it and try to say that it can save you. It never can, but just, just so you know, it's good. It's, it's the law of God. It's God's revelation of Himself. It's His perfect standards. So don't, number one, accuse me of being anti-law, anti-Semitic. He's not doing, he's saying, no, don't go there and don't accuse me for a second or don't think you can get away for a second of saying, you know why this whole world is in such a mess? It's God's fault. It's God's law. He's saying, no. We're the problem. God is not the problem. And no doubt he's doing all of this as a greater defense. He's doing all of this as a defense of the gospel. I don't think any of this would have ever come up if he hadn't gone through such detail in the early chapters of Romans to explain that the gospel has nothing to do with anything you could possibly do because you're a sinner, including your attempts to keep the law. But as soon as somebody hears that, they might have a legitimate question or they might have ill motive questions and they try to undermine the gospel and they try to say, here's why the gospel isn't logical. Here's why the gospel isn't reasonable. Here's why ultimately this is, this is a messed up argumentation. And he's saying, I don't want to let any of those go. And so if you're thinking, you know, this is a little bit too much detail. He didn't really need to go into all this explanation. He's actually doing this for our benefit and for our good so that we can see that the gospel actually stands up under all forms of scrutiny. All that we've been hearing in Romans chapter 7 ultimately is to support the genuineness and the truthfulness of this reality, and that is you are a sinner. You can't keep God's law. God's law is not the problem. In fact, God's law even smokes out your sinful motives and it causes you to actually want to do more wrong things. Which should cause you to say, you know what, if never before I see I need a Savior. It's all designed to ultimately have us see the beauty of Christ and the excellence of Christ and the greatness of Christ. And I'm thankful for that. Paul is thinking up arguments that some of us have never even thought of. But others are thinking of them. And others you'll talk to have thought of them. And so I love the detail. I love the multidimensional argumentation trying to cover all the bases. And by the grace of God, this has helped the church stand for the last 2,000 years. This is good for us to understand it from a more exhaustive perspective. But don't lose sight of the fact that he's not just trying to win arguments. He's trying to preserve the integrity of the gospel so that it will stand as not something you just quote-unquote take on faith as in you take on irrationality. It's not that at all. So let's pray and thank God for His wisdom. Father, thank You for this morning and, and thank You for Christ and for His gospel and for His truthfulness. 
Thank you for giving us minds that can reason. Thank you for giving us minds that can think through things and think through arguments. Yes, we do ultimately trust you and we depend upon you. But we are thankful that you've given us so much to think about and so much that points us toward the truthfulness of the gospel and the truthfulness of Christ. Thank you for these kinds of arguments that even perhaps even this morning are arguing against hearts. We would ask that you would do what only you can do and that's to take your word with the power of your spirit and use it like a scalpel to do a supernatural work in the human heart. To use your word, as Jeremiah says, like a hammer. And to smash idols and false arguments so that there would be a new heart, so that there would be softness toward Christ as the King of kings and Lord of lords, as the great Savior. In His name we pray. Amen.